we have a model where we take money from venture investors and we give it to engineers. Ah. That, that's, how, that's how the business model works. But, um, except for that, now that we're part of Google, yeah, now that we're part plan? of Google, everything's changed. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down, say it straight, another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to episode 17 of Acquired, the podcast where we talk about technology acquisitions. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we're going to be talking about Google's acquisition of Waze. But first, we talked about in our last episode, we are going to be doing a community showcase. And this week, it's one of our listeners, Brian Sanders. He and his team are building something called NextCast. NextCast is a next-generation podcasting client that has a lot of interactivity baked into it. So they look at the existing kind of flat, one-way medium of podcasting as it is today, and Brian and his team are looking at ways to make it kind of more of a, a two-way street so you can have a relationship with with a podcaster and click links and watch videos and things like that. The app's not totally built yet, but their customer development process and kind of their their um, pitching for funding and things like that is being covered in a podcast called Building Nextcast. So check them out at buildingnextcast.com if you're interested. It's a... Uh... It's really cool that uh, we launched Community Spotlight and uh, we did an episode about podcasts and uh, it's like they were listening to the episode. This is perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. I, I, it's so if anybody out there is building a social navigation app, uh, <laughs> please ping us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If uh, if you would like to be uh, on our next listener showcase and you're working on something that you want to tell people about, um, shoot us an email at acquiredfm at gmail.com or uh, tweet at us at acquiredfm. Or hit us up in the Slack group, as always. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two. Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and Friends of the Show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. All right, Ben, should we get into it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Ways. Um I would presume most of our listener base is familiar with Waze, but for those who aren't, it is a social navigation app. Um, 
much like Google Maps or MapQuest going way back uh, or Apple Maps. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, but you drive with friends. Yeah. And uh, so Waze's you know, magical insight is that um, there's a whole bunch of data being collected on the road by other drivers all the time that can indicate um, things passively like, oh, there's a there's a traffic, uh, there's high traffic there because people are going really slow. Now, Google's been doing that for a long time. They introduced that in, in 2009 based on data being fed back from Android. But what Waze does is it, it both plugs you in with a social network based on Facebook or importing your contacts. And you can, while you're driving, report things like red light cameras, like police officers, like traffic accidents. And uh, you kind of get a, a, a real-time map when you're driving of uh, the incidents on the road. And this is really cool because before Waze, uh, there was kind of like all of navigation and mapping was this like top-down thing where like, you know... Uh, Tom Tom or Garmin, like they had their data set that was like canonical. And then, you know, even Google was collecting it from Android phones. But before that, you know, they were just buying it from from these other companies. Um, but the key insight in Waze was like, hey, people are driving around with this stuff. Like they should be sending data back about what's really going on in real time. So, yeah, cool history about how this started. So Waze... Um, is uh, actually an Israeli company. Uh, and this is our first acquisition that we're covering out of Israel. Um, it was started in 2006 by five co-founders, Ehud, uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, Ehud Shab- Shabtai uh, was the main founder and CTO. And he was joined by Amir and Gili uh, Shinar, uh, Uri Le- Yuri Levine, uh, and Ari uh, Gilan. And Ahud had been given an old GPS system, well, new at the time, but Hmm. now old to our view GPS system by a friend. Um, You know, those things that like, my dad still has one of these that you like the portable things like a Garmin type thing. Yeah, like in once a year or something, you can download all the new map tiles. Yeah, and you like, you know, plug it into your cigarette lighter in your car and like, you know, suction cup it to your your windshield. Um, So he'd been given one of these in 2006 and... uh, he thought it was super cool, and he decided to write some software for it that would allow people to share information uh, about where speed cameras were located uh, in on the streets in Israel. And it started to take off, uh, but the company that made the GPS device that he had didn't like it, and so they sent him a cease and desist letter. Whoa! <laughs> and I believe, uh, I, b- I believe we read that uh, they said, you know, oh, they'd, they'd be willing to, you know, like integrate the software, but like he had to stop doing it. Uh, and so rather than uh, just giving them the software, he said, well, screw you. I'm going to take your mapping data out of this and I'm just going to create my own mapping data and I'm going to crowdsource it and uh, have build this through the user base socially. So he started a project called Free Map Israel. And the aim was just that to replace this sort of like top down map data set that this company had put in their GPS unit with a crowdsourced, you know, living and social um, data set. And it started to take off. Huh. A couple of years later, in 2008, things are going well, and they changed the name of the project and the company to Waze, and they changed the terms of the map from of the the map data from being open and being usable by anyone to um, being owned by Waze. So Waze now owns and can commercialize all mm. of the mapping data that its users are generating. And so that was in in 2008. And then in March of 2008, uh, they raised their Series A, the first capital they raised. Um, They raised $12 million, uh, led by Blue Run Ventures, which is a U.S. venture firm, um, and Magma Venture Partners and Vertex Venture Capital, I believe, who are are Israeli venture firms. Um, And it's interesting, later, you know, this comes to play after the acquisition, um, uh, Noam Bardan, who uh, became joined later in 2009 as the CEO of the company, uh, he writes a blog post and he said, one of Waze's mistakes was the valuation of its Series A, uh, which significantly diluted the founders. Uh, perhaps mm. had we held control of the company as the founders of Facebook, Google, Oracle, or Microsoft had, Waze might still be an independent company today. This was after the acquisition he wrote in a blog post on LinkedIn. Oh, wow. Yeah. So... The company continues to grow uh, after they raise the Series A, uh, mostly in Israel, and then they start to add other countries as well. Um, and in December of 2010, by that point, they've reached 2 million users, and things are 
uh, growing pretty well. They have over 250 million kilometers logged uh, in the app, which is which is huge. Again, think compared to um, data that other mapping companies are using, uh, which is not live real data. This is you know a, a huge amount of mileage that's that's you know on real city streets and routes that are getting uploaded to Waze. Yeah. So at that point, they raise a $25 million Series B from the same investors uh, plus Qualcomm. And that was at a $95 million valuation. Um, this was all reported in a Wall Street Journal article after the acquisition. Um, and at that point, they opened up their first office in the U.S. in Palo Alto, um, which was really cool. I remember when I um, when I started uh, at, at business school at Stanford and seeing the Ways office just like on the street in Palo Alto like oh man there's ways like that's super cool <laughs> it was in a little I, storefront I had that same uh that same feeling I remember when I um moved out to California for a summer for an internship walking up and down Castro Street and Mountain View and just seeing like all the different startups the one that actually um, sticks out in my mind was we uh Mebo. I remember it was like yeah. that web-based chat software that I had used a lot and it's like really strange when you see a logo in real life that you're used to seeing digitally like a like a physical representation on a building and you're like whoa it's it's right there yeah this is one of those like really strange things that when you live in silicon valley you like get used to really quickly and don't think about but when you first like move there or you visit um is totally mind jarring like you see these storefronts and they're actually like storefronts in palo alto and mountain view and sometimes even in san francisco that'll be next to retail shops and they're like you know ways yeah um so they raised the Series B. They had about 2 million users. That's December of 2010. Fast forward not quite a year to October of 2011. And here the intrigue starts to begin. October 2011, they raised their Series C. So less than a year later, they raised $30 million at about a $200 million valuation um, from Kleiner Perkins and Horizons Ventures. And they announced that they have 7 million users at that point. So October 2011. Uh, at the end of 2011, beginning of 2012, they announced they have 10 million users. So in just a couple months, they had 3 million users. Halfway through uh, 2012, in July, they announced that they have 20 million users. So they've now doubled from 10 to 20 in yeah. six months. Um, and uh, and then later on, by the end of 2012, they get to 34 million users. But a really important thing happens in the life of this company. And like I said, where the intrigue begins in the summer of 2012 at, at WWDC. It's amazing like how much um, you know uh, Apple and WWDC ends up playing a role in you know our podcast here. Um, is, is this is this the Forrestal? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Scott Forrestal's last hurrah, last stand. Um, it's like Custer's last stand. I was actually at. Wait, wait, uh, say what it is. Well, so yeah, I, I'm burying the lead here. Um, Apple announces iOS six at WWC 2012. And in it, one of the marquee features is they're launching Apple Maps. Dun, dun, dun. So they're ripping Google Maps out of uh, the iPhone. So until then, all previous versions of iOS had had the native built-in map software was Google Maps. That that was built by Apple, but with Google's data. And data. Go- Google's you know uh, map tiles. Yeah. And I think it was something like the... Uh, the contract expired and it was such that Apple didn't want to renew the contract with Google because they were starting to kind of part ways and, and get into a little bit of a war between the two companies. And Apple had to ship maps early because the, they they couldn't use Google's data anymore and they didn't want to re-up and they knew that re-upping would like come with a, a really nasty price tag for them and a, a you know, a lock in to send Google a bunch of data that they didn't want to. And I think Google is also requiring that people sign in with their Google accounts, which Mm -hmm. Apple didn't want to do for privacy concerns, even all the way back then. So Apple kind of like, you know, obviously rushed maps to market because it was, well, and this is, you know, I think there's even more context setting that, uh, needs to happen here, which is that like, it's, as we were doing the research for this episode, like it struck me like just how fast the technology world moves. Like this was only four years ago, but it feels like a lifetime ago. And I didn't, I had completely forgotten all this stuff. So, um, this is in this, like at this time, 
the mobile platform wars, you know, quote unquote, were like in full swing, like Apple and Google are going at each other's throats. And like everybody in the tech industry is like, who's going to win mobile? Is it going to be iOS? Is it going to be Android? And, you know, the tide's swinging one way or the other. And people think that this is going to be a winner take all market at this point in time. Yeah. Um, and uh, the other thing that had happened is Tim Cook had recently taken over as CEO uh, mm. of Apple. Um, uh, Steve Jobs had passed away. Uh, and um, the uh, Apple was was really, you know, in a uh, Tim and, and Apple, they were figuring out like what was going to be the path path forward. It was it was becoming clear that there was no way that they were ever going to. Uh, overtake or catch up to or overtake Android on actual uh, user numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the world hadn't come to the conclusion yet, which now we just accept as a given is that like nobody won the platform war. Like iOS right. and Android exist, coexist peacefully. Yeah, there's this, you know, everybody builds for both mostly. And Apple kind of has the um, the more valuable customers and Android has most of the customers and that's just the the way the world works now. And there are all sorts of tools now to make it easier to build for both And yeah. um, but that was not the world back then and so this is the stage, you know, Waze had been operating for four years at this point and had been growing the user base nicely and riding the wave of mobile um, but all of a sudden they are like at the center of this huge conflict between these, these two behemoths. Yeah. So in at WWDC, Apple announces Apple Maps, and this has been years in the making, but as, as Ben, as you were saying, they had to rush the product to market when they actually shipped iOS 6 in the fall, um, and it becomes super clear. Like, there was a ton of hype for this product. This was, like, the tentpole feature of iOS 6. It becomes clear within a week that, like, it is hugely broken, uh, and there are all these reports of, like, people getting sent to the wrong addresses causing all sorts of problems and accidents and like it is a disaster for apple when this happens yeah and the story you know that apple is trying to tell is like it's it's um two-sided one is that you know we really messed this up and we apologize and that's kind of tim cook comes out with that public letter writes a writes a letter posts it on apple.com apologizing this has never happened before in the history of apple like people are saying this would never happen under steve right right but on the other side um you know apple's hedging and they're saying well you know it takes a lot of time for the data to come in for it to get better apple maps is only going to improve which is true which is which true it's gotten dramatically better and that's the exact same story they had with siri yep and um, going back to the Steve Jobs comment, it's funny, Steve, this feels like actually a, a, a tremendously Steve Jobs move because like it, Steve is famous for, you know, saying he's going to go therm- thermonuclear on Android. And like when, when he gets into a tiff, like th- they get into a tiff and like, even if, if it, it is, it has some fallout, um, like we saw here, I think that, that that's a, a very Steve move. And that's actually, um, Scott Forrestal was largely responsible for this. And, and he was a, a, a Steve Jobs protege. Yeah. And so b- closing the loop on the Apple intrigue here, this ultimately ends up in Scott Forrestal getting fired. Uh, Scott refused to write the letter. Tim said, I'm going to do it Refused to write it, refused to sign it. Only Tim Cook signed it, even though Scott had publicly announced, publicly introduced the Maps product. Like it was clear as his product. And, um, before Tim, before Steve died and Tim became CEO, like the public talked about like, Hey, is Scott Forrestal the next CEO of Apple? Right. Um, like this guy is not, he's not just like some Apple exec. This, he was like Steve Jobs's protege. Yeah. And it's amazing that in, in this letter that, that, um, Tim Cook writes, he lists some alternatives for people that, um, are dissatisfied with Apple Maps and says it's going to get better, but actually yeah, lists, alternative products lists ways as one of the products yeah. that that people should go and try out instead of Apple Maps in the in the letter, uh, which is um, again this is like uncharted territory for Apple at this point. Um, again, because with the backdrop of they are locked in this feature war with Android, and another one of the reasons why. Uh, that people speculate about why Apple and Google couldn't come to terms to keep Google Maps within the native uh, the the native iPhone software um, is that Google had recently shipped turn by turn navigation in Google Maps for Android, but not it wasn't available on Apple, mm-hmm. and people were speculating that 
Google was withholding that ability, which is hugely compelling. Um, you got to remember again, this is like more context, like the, like Tom, Tom and Garmin and all these guys had navigation apps in the app store at the time. And they cost like a hundred bucks. And I, I think they were patented like Apple for whatever reason. I, I remember maybe I, I was wrong about this, but I remember the reason being that Google maps for the iPhone didn't have turn by turn is because those companies owned the patent to that. Mm, could and have been. Maybe, maybe Apple maybe was concerned about that. Or something. But it was it was bizarre. Like the official maps app on iOS, like you only just got a list of directions. Like you couldn't it wouldn't talk to you and say like turn right in six hundred feet or whatever. Like you had to like scroll through the list as you were driving or walking or whatever. Um yeah. it was terrible now like you know looking back on it. Um but if you wanted turn by turn directions, A you got crappy products with crappy data from companies like TomTom and whatnot. Um, uh, but you had to pay 50, a hundred bucks for that right. just for the app. Like, could you imagine paying a hundred bucks for an app now? Right. 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 So the stage is set. I mean, the it's stage a- is set. So in the middle of all this Waze is free and Waze provides pretty good mapping, um, uh, data and, and application. Um, so, this was, it was kind of October 2012 by the time the dust settles. Apple's fired Scott Forrestal. Um, and uh, then rumors start swirling that Apple is looking at acquiring Waze. Which was actually never true. That uh, I, th- I believe it was, who denied it? Apple. Um, well, Apple denies everything. So okay, yeah. Anyway, Apple denied publicly. Apple, Apple denied publicly, but you got to imagine that, you know, in the wake of this, that they're looking around and saying, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Like, we just have this egg on our face yep. and here's this free app that like is pretty good in the store um, and has a really interesting data model. Like maybe we should buy it. And the, the rumors were that they were talking about about a $500 million acquisition with Waze. How far that went, we don't know, uh, but it, it, it doesn't come together. Um, at the same time, in December of 2012, so a couple months later, Google launches a standalone Maps app, the Google Maps app on iOS, which many of us, myself included, now use and love. Yep. Does include turn-by-turn directions, but is just a regular app in the App Store. And it was great. It was like this incredible... Actually, I know um, there was a five-person team that did the... the um, native code and they're actually in the Kirkland office here in here in Seattle. Oh, cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I think the back end was all all down in the valley, but the the actual iOS app, the Objective C was written up here. And wow, they, that's all and, and when it comes out, like it gets huge praise. It and it was it was like better than the Android app. And and there's all these uh yeah, that that was a big blow up. There's all these articles written about Google's new design paradigm because it was uniquely iOS but yep. still familiar for people that that um, love the Google interface and they found this amazing way to combine the two design languages and there were pieces written. There was a fast company piece that was written about how Google's new um Google had this like design studio in New York and they would go and yeah. work with all these individual business units and it was like I mean, I thought that it was really well made and I think the rest of the world did too. It was so well received. And I think actually that moment looking back on it now is the beginning, the the heralding of the end of the mobile platform wars. Like now, I like I think we can look back on that and say that was the moment when the world, at least Apple and Google both decided like, hey, we can peacefully coexist here. Yeah. Yeah, and and Google knew that they they had a good product on their hands, and if they released it, and I believe you still have to, when they released it, you had to sign in with your Google account, so that was a a path to getting a whole bunch of data that they wanted. And then Google realized they were getting all this data and all this monetization opportunity on iOS, and uh, it actually was super valuable for them. Um, So that was at the end of 2012, going into beginning of 2013. Another piece of context here... um, is that Facebook is now emerging as the big giant counterbalancing Google in the, you know, again, in the post, you know, as the world is is determining that, you know, Apple and Google can peacefully coexist, like Google's main enemy shifts from being Apple to being Facebook. Yeah. And it's funny that it was Apple. This is weird detour. Google's core competency is being the best search engine and that turns out to be a tremendous ad platform. So 
you know, 90 some percent of their revenue to this day still comes from search ads or search and display ads. And they shifted direction. It almost seems like Android was a little bit of a distraction to go to war. Like they needed, they needed Android for a variety of reasons, but it made them focus on Apple as the enemy since Apple, you know, was also producing this like rival OS that that came with great hardware. But really... Apple wasn't after Google's core business of search queries that no. led to and a nor was Google ever after Apple's core business of hardware sales. Like Google doesn't make money on hardware sales for Android. No, but they really went to bat on on trying to displace the iPhone. Yeah, and and, and it's weird. Like you know, historically, Google and Apple had always had this great symbiotic relationship. Um, Google does the services, Apple does the hardware and native software. And, you know, Eric Schmidt was on Apple's Apple's board board. um, until Steve Jobs kicked him off after they launched Android. (laughs) Uh, And really, and but, you know, then at the end of 2012, when Google launches Google Maps on iOS, it's like the detente is reached and since then, it's like, I wouldn't say it's back to the good old days, but like Google and Apple both realize like, hey, we're not each other's enemy here. Yeah. Yeah. Apple makes hardware and software that are excellent, sells the hardware. They have services that differentiate them, but ultimately you can plug in Google's superior services on, on any of those devices. And have and, a great experience and it's symbiotic. Yeah. But you can, you can see why Google felt so strongly that they needed to control the input pipeline. It's the same reason that they make Chrome. It's the same reason they're distributing Chrome books. Anybody who's the front door to the, the user has the power to redirect that. Like Apple shipping all these services associated with Bing in Siri and I, maybe even the default search engine on iOS. Uh, it's still Google, but okay. you know, that's always back and forth. It, but Yeah. It's, it, 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 you can totally see why Google's like, okay, we need to make sure that we don't like lose you know billions of the, people the front are, door right. to the internet which is where we make our advertising money which is foreshadowing yeah yeah so facebook so, goes public you know the right around the same time as wwdc in 2012 the beginning of this maps drama the real threat emerges to google and that's facebook's ipo yeah google's google's you know castle is where are people going to spend their ad dollars digitally and that's linked to where people spend their time and where people's front door to the internet is. And right. it's like, oh man, like, that's Facebook increasingly. A- yeah, Apple's not going to eat Google's lunch. They have no incentive to to try and get that advertising pie. But like Facebook sure is. That's that's their core business. That's the real threat. Yep. So we've just gone through this wild ride. Apple was rumored to be circling around ways thinking about a half a billion dollar ish acquisition um, to fix their mapping issue uh, falls through. But then a couple months later in the spring of 2013 rumors start circulating that Facebook is not only interested in ways, but is going to buy ways yeah. and going to buy ways for about a billion dollars. This was in the press for, weeks um it was almost reminded me of of the twitch deal you know about um about a year later uh in that like everybody just thought this was like a done deal that facebook had bought ways yeah and in my research trying to look and see you know how how google justified this this acquisition and um you know how ways was doing as an independent business beforehand so many of these articles of that are all loosely titled why is ways worth a billion dollars were written before the acquisition yeah nobody even knew google was in the mix at this point this was about facebook yeah yeah so the the facebook deal falls through and we don't know you know unfortunately ways was not a public company so we can't go through all the sec filings and do our usual magic and uh to date there haven't been any lawsuits for us to go through uh discovery <laughs> um so we may never know exactly what happened with Facebook, but um, in some of the comments that uh, the Waze team has made uh, after the acquisition, uh, one of the key sticking points apparently was that Facebook wanted to move the whole company to Menlo Park, uh, to California, uh, and the team really wanted to stay in Israel. Hmm. So uh, a couple you know, weeks keep going by, and the world assumes Facebook has bought Waze, but it hasn't, uh, hasn't been announced yet. And then, kind of out of the blue, June 2013, it's announced that Google is buying Waze for 
uh, right around a billion dollars, um, somewhere between a billion one and a billion three. Most of it was cash, but there were other uh, stock and other considerations. And uh, that the team is staying in Israel. The uh, Some of the Wazers who were in Palo Alto are joining Google uh, in California, but the core team is staying in Israel. Yeah. And this, you know, they had a pretty immature location-based advertising products uh, right around this time. Do, do you know when they when they actually started having a, a business model other than... Waze did? Yeah. Uh, I thought you were referring to Google had a pretty immature location-based advertising <laughs> product at this point in time, which also <laughs> might be an accurate statement. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was, I believe, when did Marissa Mayer leave Google to take over Yahoo? Topical as Verizon just bought Yahoo this week. Yeah. But, um Marissa had been in charge of Google, of um, uh, local and uh, location-based uh, advertising products at Google um, mm. before leaving for Yahoo. So I don't remember. I think she had left for Yahoo at this point. But yeah. Anyway, the, what, I, what I was sort of getting at there is this: this billion-dollar valuation has uh, yeah, very, I mean, very little. To wherever do with. Waze was in their monetization path, and they were doing things like they had sponsored gas stations, and they had some, you know, like Safeway and other location-based advertising on the map. But uh, I mean, this was a um, well. We'll get into ad- acquisition category. Well, let's just get into acquisition category right now. I mean, um, this was not a business line acquisition. <laughs> I no. I will come down hard on that. <laughs> no. What's your uh, What's your uh, categorization, Ben? Uh, I want you to go first because I'm going to do something unorth- unorthodox. Oh, I'm going to do something unorthodox. That's why I turned the, turned the ball over. Right. Okay, I'll so go I'll, first. All right. Well, all right. I, I'm doing it. So uh, traditionally on this show, we categorize either by people, technology, product, business line, or other. And I don't believe this falls into any of them because this I is agree. a data acquisition. I agree. And David, you were, it's funny, you were just bringing this up right before we talked about the show. Um, I want to introduce for acquired going forward uh, another category of, of asset. Yep. This is clearly an asset buy. Is that what, what was that? What That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like right in here. <laughs> All right. So apparently we are. Too are we sharing one. notes or something? No. Like, are I you cheating on the I'm test, Ben? We actually started um, like, f- what, five or six episodes ago. David and I realized that uh, it wasn't very fun when we like talked beforehand and then were of one mind when we um, got into the show. And then we would refer to things like we were talking before the show, which is less fun for you guys. So uh, we were like, OK, we're going to stop talking before the show, except for like a few things here and there to make sure we have all of our bases covered. And sure enough. Here we both are again. Yeah. And it's like, this is so clearly what it is because you know, if you run through all the our, all of our previous categories for acquisition, like this was not a people acquisition. Like the ways talent, the, the ways founders were clearly very talented, but um, that's not, you know, Google had plenty of people who a, were a, great a, at a billion dollars is not a talent acquisition. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. No, it's not. Uh, this was not a technology acquisition. The technology, as we were just saying, that was actually in the Google Maps asset was arguably as good or better than Waze at the time. Yeah, they didn't have active reporting, but they had the passive reporting of of traffic and had been doing it forever. And I actually had in my notes from real early research, why doesn't Google just do this themselves? Because this is exactly the kind of thing they're good at. Yep. It wasn't a product acquisition. Like Waze still exists and lots of people use it and love it, but like they didn't replace Google Maps with this. No, and it's in fact not even part of like the Google suite. They Google finally now is bundling it um, as one of the OEM options when when you get to choose all the Google services when you're making an Android mm. phone, but it's still not a Google branded product. No, Maps is, Google Maps is still clearly the flagship yeah. location based product. Um it definitely wasn't a business line. No, it but it make money. definitely was an other other slash asset uh, buy. And the asset was, you know, I think a couple of things in this case, which is really interesting. Like, um, I think this, we talked about this a little bit with LinkedIn, but like, A, this was a data asset. Like, Waze generates so much very, very valuable data um, for that would be valuable to lots of people, but especially to Google in terms of improving their maps product, their core maps product, in terms of their driverless car initiatives and everything they're doing with transportation, you know, having real time data and not just passive data being streamed back from the phone like they're doing with Google Maps, but things like, you know, where traffic stops are, like user reported Mm -hmm. accidents, um, 
you know, uh, controversially, but has always been part of ways, you know, reporting where uh, police offices are, officers are in speed traps mm-hmm. and red light cameras and things like that. Um, but also like super clearly, as we've just been talking about with this whole drama leading into the acquisition, this had huge defensive value for Google. Like they yeah. did not want Facebook to have this. Yeah, and and even more than the actual asset of the data is they bought this data gathering machine. And I think that's why we haven't seen them mess with it at all is because it had a, a great growth trajectory, particularly after um, after the Apple Maps debacle. It was growing at like 100,000 new users a, a day. Yeah. It was insane. And, you know, that, that obviously is short-lived, but they recognize that this thing is going to continue to feed us really great data and data about the real world. Mapping data is something that is in need of being constantly updated and people they like ways has invented these great mechanics that people often complain about because they say they're distracting while they're driving but they've really created uh, mechanics that people reliably feed really up-to-date information in high fidelity yeah both passively and actively yeah and you know the the super high value asset is nailing the creation of that machine and the user experience that compels people to continue to do that over and over again. Yep. Um, well, I'm, uh, I don't know if I want to say I'm glad we're in agreement, but, um, I think we should add this to our categories going forward because this is so usually in other, it's like, Oh, it's a one-off, but like, this is very clearly a category that we just haven't, haven't come across before. Yeah, I agree. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Cool. So what would have happened otherwise? I feel like, you know, in a lot of ways, it's it's um, through what we were discussing in the history with the the drama and all the different big tech companies circling around ways, you know, uh, this company was going to get acquired by somebody. So I think that's what would have happened otherwise. Yeah. It's also interesting to think, though, I mean, you know, this was 2013, again, not that long ago, reminding me again how fast the technology world moves. I feel like Ferris Bueller here, you know, if you don't stop and look around (laughs) once in a while, you might miss it. Um, Nobody was thinking about driverless cars then. And Mm -hmm. today, like people think driverless cars are going to be the second coming and yeah. the uh you know every tech company and their mother is is going after it and what's interesting is that Israel is actually really uh companies in Israel and talent in Israel are really well positioned in this there's a company called Mobileye um which is a large public company now that makes a lot of the sensors that go into cars that are used for autonomous and semi-autonomous applications um is that the military influence that well everything in israel is military influenced but um uh so um this is yes but um you know it's interesting to think like would a 
is independent Israeli based transportation and um, driving focused company, software company combined with the hardware talent there um, be a real player in the race for autonomous cars today? Mm. I don't know. I mean, clearly, you know, big asset to Google right now. Yeah, the hard part would be production. I mean, that's that's something that traditionally American manufacturing has been very good at making. But, you know, the Japanese are probably uh, forthcoming Chinese cars. Um, well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, it's just like um, that market is so still has so far to go to play out. Like, do you actually have to make the whole car yourself? Could you make kits to put into cars mm-hmm. that lots of people are trying to do? Um, you know, can you just be a pure software platform yeah my i i think if i'm the car companies right now and realizing that there's going to be this driverless future i think you have to make the bet that people aren't going to want to buy your cars in mass but people might want to subscribe to your fleet yeah and it would be like a mercedes-based uber like a self-driving mercedes-based uber and the question is like you know, would people rather subscribe to a individual auto manufacturer's fleet or the things you can do for lock-in there? Or would people rather subscribe to a more generic fleet, Google or, uh, or Uber? Or You know, in terms of, you know, thinking about themes we've talked about on this show a lot, you know, in terms of Ben Thompson's aggregation theory and owning the customer and the user experience, you know, his ways, is Google Maps, is that the user experience for driving now? And like mm. then the cars at the back end? I don't know. Uh, maybe we should also spend a minute. I think it would be because this is just pure speculation. Um, as will this next topic. But what if Facebook had bought these guys? Like, what does the world look like now? Facebook has basically no play in, in transportation right yeah. now. Did you see? Uh, this isn't quite transportation, but Facebook's doing some like crazy cool uh, drone. Oh stuff. yeah, super they, cool. So Facebook's, you know, Facebook's core competency is delivering ads to people, and they they've basically run out of people with internet. So to expand past their existing massively saturated user base, they're trying to get internet to more people. So there's a team. I think it's a London-based engineering team that. Um, yeah, it was created, a company. Uh, I believe it was a company they acquired. Yeah. But they created this like gigantic drone that can is super lightweight and as like can beam internet down and can fly for like a month at a time, and so it's like it's interesting like while they're not in the transportation space, they are in sort of the large scale manufacturing space for completely different reasons. Yeah, super cool. This thing is awesome. Like it is a giant drone that can stay in the air for. <laughs> Um, for uh, you know, months at a time, and beam internet down, and probably do uh, satellite imagery applications yeah, as well. Um, super cool. Yeah, it's it is interesting. Like, why why you could see Facebook buying this just to more effectively deliver local ads. I mean, this feels like Facebook at this point is looking for basically Facebook is buying digital social billboard space, and that's what Instagram is. That I don't know if that's what WhatsApp is. That eventually is what Oculus is, right? They create these experiences and Facebook extends their core competency of, of you know, being an advertising company into that. Uh, I think it's wildly speculative, but basically like, you know, Waze fits into that category of, of digital social billboard space where stuff comes up that is relevant to you or people want to show to you or your friends recommend. I, I think it makes sense in that context and it just doesn't get used um, for the autonomous car stuff at all. Yep. It is interesting, like, uh, to this point, until about two minutes ago, we started, we've been talking about ways in the context of the world when it was acquired. And it is interesting now to start thinking about it in the context of the world several years from now that's much more focused on requiring a super high-fidelity data asset for autonomous vehicles. Yep, yep. Um, which is, like, you know... Clearly, Google, they'd already announced that they were working on self-driving cars as part of Google X at that point um, when they acquired Waze. Um, but very few other people were thinking about this at that point in time. You know, how much did that play into this acquisition or not at the time? You know, hard to say, but but it's um, clearly like for them as a defensive move versus everybody else that's trying to get into it. Now, I mean, like Facebook might have bought it, but what if Tesla had bought you know, ways. right, right, right. Or what if Apple had bought ways as they were trying to, and Apple is now, as you know, widely reported, working on self-driving cars. Yeah, did you just see they they put Bob Mansfield in front of that? I saw in, that in charge of it. Bob Mansfield is like their uh, 
think he's a senior VP of hardware and then like didn't agree with management or something when Scott Forstall was still there and then moved to like head of special projects and seemed like he was like half retiring, but now he's like really back in full fro- full force with Project Titan or the, the yep. Apple. I think that's a code name for the Apple self-driving car thing. Yep. Interesting. All right. Should we move on to tech themes? Yeah. Not that, not that we haven't been in there <laughs> yeah. for the last couple of minutes. <laughs> well, I've got, so I've got uh, two here actually, and one I'll just do quickly, which is, you know, we've mostly covered in, in this past section, but, um, you know, is, is sort of the, um, the value of a, of a data asset. And, and, um, but specifically the, the bent I wanted to talk about it is like, it's when you have the potential for, um, a very valuable data asset, you can use that as like a way to upend the business model in, um, in the industry that you're playing in and just give something away for free. So in this case, like turn by turn navigation apps, you know, cost 50 to a hundred dollars, yeah. you know, but ways can just give it away for free because they're going to get their value out of getting the data. Right. Cause, um, and they don't have to pay to acquire it. And they don't have to, yeah, right. And they don't have to, they don't have to pay. Um, and I think we've seen this in, in various ways in, in other, um, acquisitions both that we've covered on the show and ones that we haven't yet like i'm thinking about instagram right like mm-hmm. instagram was a social network right but there was also this app called hipstamatic that was out before instagram that was basically just the same thing but it cost three bucks yep. and it gave you a cool photo filter for your photos and instagram came out and made it free and like lots of people i'm sure tried instagram because they're like oh cool i wanted to use hipstamatic but i didn't want to pay three bucks you know um yeah. And, you know, same with LinkedIn. Like if you wanted access to people's resumes, you had to, you know, pay recruiters and like go through databases and whatnot. And LinkedIn was like, resumes are free, you know. Um, right. Skype did the same thing with phone calls. WhatsApp did the same thing with text messages. Um, so I think it's a... Oh, that's a really interesting way of looking at that that I really thought of before. It's like all of these companies found a way to make something free that was previously expensive. And then could up in that business model. And I think a lot of the initial users that came onto these platforms were probably just like cheapos who were like, oh yeah, I want, I, I want, I was thinking about using Hipstamatic, but I really don't want to pay three bucks, you know? Yeah. Or, which, uh, which is like everyone, right? Like, right. Like as much, I do that. You do that. Like we, look exactly. At, yeah. you, like we're all cheapos in, in various ways. And, um, but that's the thing about like how you can get these winner take all markets and what you need to tip the market in your favor is you need to like I love the the Jeff Bezos quote at the code conference, which was um, this year, which was one of our carve outs a while a while back. You know, he said he has, has this thing. He says, um, I think it was either Kara or Walt was asking him about uh, Prime. And he's like, I want it. I want it. Amazon Prime to get to the point where it would be irresponsible not to be a prime member because you're getting so much value out of it. And like, that's what, that's what this is here is like, it would be irresponsible to pay for hipstamatic because you get more value out of Instagram and it's free. Right. Which, especially with networks, network effects, of course you get more value out of it. Everyone's using it because it's free. Exactly. Network effects. They're a beautiful thing. Yeah. All right. I'll, uh, I'm going to do my two now that was just one of yours right you have another one coming uh yeah but it's it's fast so all right cool i'm gonna do both my next are related one is bringing measurable online advertising into the real world google and facebook both have ad units around this now of trying to trying to attribute when you see ads online and when you go to physical retail stores and understanding where those places are, tracking you either via GPS or sensors when you're in the store, trying to bridge transactions in the store and, and, and really get some good measurement around the, the holistic view of, of you in the real world and you, uh, you online. And, you know, Waze totally does this. You see a digital ad, you tap on it, you navigate to go there. And like, there's people don't even think twice about the privacy because like the main purpose of Waze is knowing where you are. So, you hand that data right over. You say, I want to go to this place. You navigate there. They might have paid for that ad. And then, or, or it might be a place that you're kind of organically trying to go to. And then Waze knows that you for sure went there, which makes it a pretty valuable ad unit and kind of ahead of their time. I think people were talking about doing this for a long time, but the idea of putting it into an app where you very explicitly have said, please track me yep. is, is Did pretty I interesting. Actually go there. Yep. Yeah. And then this kind of falls out of, uh, um, my, my second piece, which is, or my, my second tech theme, which is banner ads totally failed on mobile. 
like display ads were a thing on on websites and people tried to put banner ads on mobile, but there's so, such little screen real estate that even the display ad people on mobile have mostly fallen back to just putting a big freaking desktop square in the middle of articles. Remember and, when, uh, this would be a fun episode to do at some point, but when um, Google bought AdMob and Apple bought, uh, was it Quattro Wireless? Quattro Wireless. So like, Everybody oh, yeah, thought like mobile display was going to be such a thing. <laughs> yeah, a I thing. mean, there's like there's that slide every single year in Mary Meeker's deck that says that the uh, the mobile ad opportunity is still huge because the amount of minutes spent on mobile versus on desktop way outpaces the actual ad spent on mobile versus desktop. Yeah. And that's because like uh, this is this is my my tech theme. We're just now seeing the emergence of effective native advertising on mobile. And as it turns out, it's not a banner ad. It's yeah. not a square. It's not an intersertial. It's none of those things. It's not Instagram, yeah, Snapchat. Yeah. And it's Pokemon, right? Like yeah. it's it's it, figuring out what the very specific tailored experience someone is in when they're they're immersed in this you know, single full screen application. And like in the Pokemon case, it's my God, they're so obsessed with finding that we're so obsessed with finding the Pokestop or the gym and like businesses can pay for the right to direct like people to go places in the real world. And, and that's going to be, in, in my opinion, the way that mobile advertising succeeds is that it's native. It's very specific to the platform. And it took us freaking 10 years of mobile to figure out what, the right yep. way to advertise to people on that platform. It's is. such a classic case of like, uh, you know, the mobile display ads being like the head fake that, you know, it was a faster horse, right? Like it just wasn't, you know, it was the totally wrong way to think about it. And we see this over and over again in technology that like, um, and we especially see it like being in, in, you know, the startup world, like so many times people recognize an opportunity coming in a wave but their mode of thinking is stuck in the old world mm -hmm. right and like you know it's the faster horse thing like you know it's like you know you need to build the car you know and like right pokemon go is the car snapchat is the car instagram is the car <laughs> ad mob was the horse you know yeah um, it's a 750 million dollar horse but hey you know <laughs> good for um good for then uh and uh uh, Omar, Omar, I believe the CEO yeah. is at Sequoia now. So, um, hey, yeah, he's doing great. Uh, everybody, it worked out for everybody. I'm going to do my second one real quick. We've also talked about this before, but I think this is a really, I put this in here because there was a great quote uh, in that same blog post I referenced earlier that we'll put in the show notes from uh, Noam Bardan, who uh, was the CEO of Waze and still is from 2009 onward. Uh, and, and, and the theme is that like entrepreneurship is a global thing now and like Silicon Valley is this incredibly special place and has its own network effect and is where the vast majority of startups are going to come. But like innovation is not a physical, is not a physical location based thing anymore. And, and no one puts this great in his blog post. He, he writes, you know, about how Waze was an Israeli company and the importance of that. He says, growing up in Israel in the 80s and 90s, I lived in a radically different world than my American cousins. <clears throat> we had one channel of black and white TV. Music and movies arrived 10 years later. There was no fast food or American brands, and we lived very differently. And then he talks about how uh, cable television started flattening the consumer experience when that came out in the 90s uh, and early 2000s. But then he says, then the internet like accelerated this change as people globally used Windows PCs and explorers to surf websites. Social and platforms have pounded at it again. And today, most of the users have the same Facebook account or Gmail interface and use it very similarly. The final flattening of innovation in the world uh, came from mobile. Anywhere you go in Israel today, you will see iPhones and Android phones, the same as in San Francisco, running the same consumer apps and delivering equal joy. On a family vacation with Waze Management, it was amazing watching our kids, both Israeli and American, naturally communicate and share apps without the need to speak the same language. Like, mm. this is like a sea change that's happening in innovation. And we're seeing it with stuff like apps like Musical.ly now that are getting big, like it's based mm -hmm. in Shenzhen, but like it's a big social network in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's still something to be said for density of networks, um, like, like the, just the people you encounter and the people you work around and the speed at which information gets gets exchanged there. Absolutely. Uh, but I, th and I think the nuance here, though, is like uh, something like Musical.ly, something like Waze, like 
it's in both places. Like Musical.ly is in Shenzhen and it's in yeah. Silicon Valley. Waze was in Palo Alto and in Israel. Yeah. Yeah. I, I Definitely the dual office thing. I would say like you still sort of need to have your finger on the pulse in the hub. Yep. And absolutely. Well, we talked about this with Scott, right? Like the importance uh, on, with uh, in the exact target episode, it was so important to Scott and to Indianapolis that they get the direct flight to San Francisco. Yeah. yeah. It's a great point. Um, okay. Grading it? Let's grade it. Um, so it's interesting. There's probably, there's like two criteria to think through here. There's, we're three years out from this acquisition. So we have a little bit of perspective. We can see what they've done with it so far. But then you also have to take into account the speculative uh, view looking forward, which is a lot around autonomous vehicles. And, you know, I think they've done a pretty, like, it's really hard to figure out what the size of the ad business within Waze is. I predict it is nowhere near close to paying back um, the, the, the purchase like this as a product I would be shocked. <laughs> yeah. This as a product is not, not going to pay for itself, but the data asset has stayed really strong. Like people still use ways all the time. Many like Uber drivers are, are you know, yep. using it and preferring it to, to Google maps. It's, uh, in, in developing countries, it's used way more often because the crowdsource data is way more accurate. Yep. So as those countries really start to come online, I mean, their default experience is ways. It would be not great for Google if that was out of their hands. And I think that that combined with uh, with Google's autonomous vehicle future and the the, the great data that it, it develops, that it that creates for itself, for its use in its own app, and that feeds into Google Maps, you know, I'm going to go A minus only because these the, the A's that we've given out are just like wildly successful on a ridiculously fast scale. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's almost like in some ways this is a cut. Like I am going to give it a grade, but but how I really feel is, and I know this is a cop out in some ways, but ways, quote unquote. Um, yuck, yuck, it's, yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> it's too early to tell. Like even though this happened three years ago, and it's too early to tell because. Just like like three years ago and this whole Waze story, I feel like was really the closing chapter of the mobile platform wars, quote unquote. You know, what's happened since then, we're now at the emerging of the era of like machine learning is the really important thing in technology. Like we went from, you know, Google's being very open and saying this, you know, uh, about themselves, but we went from a world... Uh, call it 10 years ago where companies were, you know, internet first companies. We weren't software companies. We were internet companies to, you know, from 10 to five years ago, the world <coughs> shifted to mobile first companies. Companies aren't, you know, aren't just internet, like they're mobile and they're not just building desktop websites. But now like we're shifting to a machine learning based, you know, companies are ML first. Like Google is very explicit. We are an ML first company now. And you see that across all of our products with Google Brain, with Maps, with TensorFlow. And um, the first, I think, like huge native ML application that industry that's going to happen is going to be probably autonomous vehicles. So um, already is. Well, yeah, it already is. I mean, Tesla's doing it. Like it was like, you know, this was the Trojan horse. Um, So how important ways um, and the ways data becomes in that to Google. Like, like I said, I think the value is still in the future. Uh, but that said, like um, for the defensive reasons we talked about and for the value that they've realized even so far along that. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's an a minus cause um, like you said, the bars, our bar is, is very high for the A's. Um, yeah. It's like, it's, it's an a minus with low confidence that it's going to stay there. Right, like it either is going to be an A or it's going to not be an A minus. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, uh, it's interesting. Like compare that to Cruise, which GM bought for a billion dollars, like right around the same amount of money. Um, you know, arguably, uh, there's a lot more value in um, ways uh, thus far that Google has realized than you know. Cruise is still very much pre-product. Um, so we'll see. That's a part of why I say though, is that like, it's just, it's too early to tell. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let's bring this one on home. So follow-ups, uh, we got nothing for you this week. Um, but, uh, maybe next time, um, maybe we'll talk about autonomous vehicles. <laughs> um, 
carve out. Uh, what you got, Ben? All right, so I've got a, a podcast for us uh, this week. I um, I've been I, I listened to one episode of this because I got I got totally roped in actually a while ago uh, to a podcast called Song Exploder by their first episode, which uh, which featured the Postal Service and what what the um, host does, Rishi K. Sherway, uh, he sits down with an artist, a, a musical artist, does an interview, and also gets them to provide the actual track, um, all, all the different tracks that make up that that song. And he'll listen to each layer and play each layer individually and have a conversation with that artist about where did this individual sound come from and where did this instrument come from and who provided this and who did you collaborate with. And a lot of the times they even come with early recordings and demos and songs that inspired that song. And he does a really great job of kind of isolating these individual pieces. So you go, oh, whoa, I can totally see that. And um, one of my favorite bands is Odessa. I saw them this, this weekend in Seattle at Capitol Hill Block Party. Their episode is is super, super cool. They talk about, you know, when they went over to Bainbridge Island to, to compose this song. And um, that that's super cool. But the, the best episode in my opinion, and it's sort of dangerous to start with this one because it sets the bar high, is uh, an interview um, uh, with Weezer where the systematic approach to songwriting by this dude is absolutely amazing. And he has like spreadsheets full of um, lyrics that come out of his journaling that he highlights that he then puts in there and tags by the number of syllables and the onbeat and the offbeat and then combining all these different ones after he writes a riff. It is like, uh, I'm not doing it justice. You, you got to listen to this. It's the Weezer episode of Song Exploder. It's so good. Dude, that's awesome. I've I've heard about this podcast but and been meaning to check it out, um, but I really need to know. That sounds really cool it's like they're doing two uh songs what we do to m&a deals they are and the production is so so high quality it's like a, a total treat to listen to each one and it's gotten me into bands that i didn't like before and it's gotten me into songs where now when i hear some of these songs after i hear it get exploded for 20 minutes before it's like it that song that comes on that's like one of my favorite songs if it was if it was an episode that's awesome um so uh, my carve out for the week is an oldie but goodie uh, that was sent to me uh, recently by a really good friend. Um, and uh, I'm so glad he sent it to me because I'd watch, it's a TED Talk, um, and it's uh, Simon uh, Sinek's uh, Start With Why uh, TED Talk. Um, mm. It's one of the one of the top 10 um, TED Talks. And it's, interestingly, it's a TEDx talk done at TEDx uh, Puget Sound uh, oh, cool. here in, uh, I believe it was in Seattle in 2009. Um, and uh, uh, it's just such a cool concept. And it's it's called Start With Why. And then he ended up writing a book about this. Um, but in the sort of more raw version of the TED Talk, um, he talks about it as the golden circle. And it's, uh, you know, there are three levels of communication about um, a company or a product or a person or a firm. Um, there's the what you do, there's the how you do it, and there's the why you do it. And 99% of companies or firms or products or people say, hi, I'm David. I'm a venture capitalist at Madrona Venture Group in uh, Seattle, Washington. And uh, we um, do seed and series a, uh, deals, uh, invest in seed and series a stage technology companies, largely in the Pacific Northwest, uh, and would love to talk to great companies. Right. So it's like people start with what, and then they do how, and then maybe they do a little bit of why, but if you actually want to inspire people and reach people and do something, um, that, uh, is, has a much higher chance of success, you need to start, you need to reverse the order and start with why mm -hmm. say, I'm David Rosenthal. I believe that all great companies in the Pacific Northwest uh, deserve a chance to have a experience with their venture capital firm that's every bit as high quality as the best companies in Silicon Valley get. Yeah, that was a lot. More Do you want my money? Right, like you know, then that like it just comes across like. You're you just by reversing about like talk about why you're doing you're doing something and what you believe in. Uh, it's going to be so much more powerful than starting with the what. Um, and uh, uh, interestingly, Apple is the is the uh, company yeah, that that he uses, uh, that he uses yeah. as the canonical example here. Uh, we think differently at Apple. 
uh, we uh, design uh, beautiful, uh, we have beautiful, intelligently designed products. Uh, and those products happen to be phones and computers, not we make computers. And cars. And cars, yeah. Not we make computers and phones. We design them beautifully and we believe in thinking differently. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, that wouldn't fit on the poster. It would not. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the Internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, Go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. All right. If you aren't subscribed on iTunes and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. And if you feel so inclined, we would love a review on iTunes or uh, tell, tell your friends, share us on Twitter, and um, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time. Who got the truth? Is it you, is it you, is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh.